Hello, this is the Young Professionals Network at the Canadian International Council, back to introduce Episode 2 of the CIC's podcast, Plan C. Back to introduce Episode 2 of the CIC's podcast, Plan C. I know it's been a year since our first and last episode, so I'd like to thank returning listeners for coming back. For those of you who are new, welcome. Today we'll be talking about Afghanistan and the role Canada has to play in this country's current situation, where it's been two years to the day that the Taliban took back control. I'm so excited to present our guest, Lutfala Najafizada, who has been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia and was named as one of Time Magazine's Next Generation Global Leaders for his work as an award-winning journalist and the former director of Tolo News, Afghanistan's top 24-7 news station. Take it away, Eliza. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is truly an honor and a pleasure. Without further ado, please go on ahead. Thank you, Eliza. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's good to be on the program. It's good to have you here. So, Taliban, Afghanistan, women, there's so much happening and so much, I guess, international indifference. I, I suppose where would one even begin with such a topic? It's a critical time in Afghanistan, almost two years since the Taliban takeover of the country and certainly a strategic setback for many of us and many of the gains that we have made in the past 20 years, particularly for women. As you said, it's really a difficult place to be a woman right now in Afghanistan. It's the only country where women are not allowed to uh, work for NGOs, work for international organizations, even work for the government. It's the only country where girls are not allowed to go to school above a grade of six. Um, and that is, I must say, a terrible place for, for girls and women. But that's not the only sad story of Afghanistan. It's the uh, largest humanitarian crisis in the world. And uh, it's one of the most suppressive regimes when it comes to dealing with media and journalists. And as well as uh, the fact that uh, the Afghan people do not see themselves in their government. It's certainly not an inclusive establishment. It does not represent Afghanistan's beauty, which is in its uh, rich diversity of all sorts. Absolutely. I recently read this book. It was called Bad News by Arjan Sundaram, I think. I hope I'm not saying his name wrong. And I think he made a really important point in that book. He's kind of talking about the Rwandan um, genocide and kind of how journalists were kind of suffering at the hands of the dictatorship. And he said something very powerful. He said that journalists are at the forefront of, of revolution. They're at the forefront of freedom. And I, I was wondering your thoughts about that, especially um, in regards to the case of, of Afghanistan. Well, democracy and free speech or press freedom in Afghanistan does not have a long history. And I must say it was just 20 years old when uh, that journey unfortunately stopped. And in that 20 years, free media and, and journalists, free speech did transform the country. It was a country where 200 hours of political content on media was produced in every 24 hours. It was a country where I think thousands of people were finding media a platform, a place to come and express their frustrations, their views, their uh, criticism, their hope, their desire, their wishes. Uh, unfortunately, that has been limited quite significantly, particularly for women again. And um, 
I remember once uh, a leading Afghan figure once told me that one reason that there was no revolution in 20 years of Afghanistan was because of media, because people were expressing their frustration on television. Uh, I think uh, media had a significant role in so many countries. It did in Afghanistan back then. It does to an extent in Afghanistan even right now. With the amount of media censorship that's happening right now, what is it that they're trying to convey? What is the message that they're trying to kind of, again, portray using media? What is the narrative they're pushing? What is their latest, I guess, dose of propaganda that they're spreading at the moment? I think a group like the Taliban, or even a government like the Taliban, they hate criticism. They cannot tolerate alternative views. And that's why I think the overall space for free flow of information is very much limited. And uh, you hear a lot of the Taliban narrative, although you hear quite significantly about the um, human tragedy in the country. You hear a lot about people suffering. But when it comes to the broader, I think, national mood and national narrative, there isn't much that you can sort of criticize the Taliban. So unfortunately, they dominate the narrative right now coming out of the country. But in the same time, I must say, thanks to, again, the past 20 years where Afghanistan was had the freest media in the entire region. There were 10,000 media professionals working in the country. Most of them, I would say 80-90% of them are still in Afghanistan. They're still producing content. They're still using international platforms, sometimes at great cost, to um, put a different view out there. But I think in places like Afghanistan right now, or we have so many other examples in the region, whether that's in Central Asia, or that's in Iran, or that's in China or Russia, or in the Middle East in general, I think it's very difficult for other narratives than their governments, their regimes, to um, have a breathing space. That makes a lot of sense. So with the people who are still there, and I know that this kind of speaks to your work in making sure that their message is kind of heard and therefore even kind of it's there's feedback system you've kind of created. How does that help with dismantling the agenda that has been brought forward by the Taliban, uh, if, if it does in any way, if you think? I think the Taliban are trying to tell the world that they represent Afghanistan and that's what they want the world to believe. But I think the country speaks differently. The people speak differently. And I think that is pretty loud and clear. We have seen that when it comes to criticism of the Taliban's edict, when it comes to uh, women's rights, when it comes to uh, human rights in general, uh, when it comes to the Taliban's criticism of the way they run the country. And uh, one, I think, tool that Afghanistan still has, it's rich, uh, now cross-border, I would say, uh, media platform. And thanks to technology, thanks to the time, the 21st century realities, I think that has been, the Taliban narrative has been quite challenged. And you hear them saying in different platforms internationally that they are unhappy about other narratives. And that says so much about the fact that I think media in general, particularly international media, has been quite successful in giving Afghanistan its real voice. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense, especially as our world becomes increasingly more globalized. You know, we're more we're more connected than ever. And so when it kind of comes to looking at obviously there's no specific timelines, but just seeing how fast knowledge and information and narrative spread nowadays. When it comes to using media as a tool, how likely is it that it's the tool to make that change that 
Afghanistanians actually want, you know, to kind of see that Taliban becoming less and less a dictative figure and maybe a reminiscent of the past. How can the media kind of create that future? I think it's important for all of us to ensure that information is not limited and uh, information is not confined. When you say limited, what do you uh, what are you referring to in that instance? Censorship, I would say, where I think that is more of a, of a cultural thing. You know, we developed this culture that people can speak their mind and their hearts. And now there is a different culture being nurtured and uh, presented to the society that, no, there are certain boundaries. You can say this, you cannot say that. And I think that has to be challenged. And I think that is being challenged. I see uh, that the Afghan media now with uh, most of them being uh, headquartered or stationed outside the country, particularly hybrid media with, with presence inside the country as well, or with partnerships inside the country. I think they are trying to make sure that the diversity of views in Afghanistan is visible in its media. And I see that. It's not just either or, I would say. I think looking at the Afghan media, you still see that there is so kind much diverse taking content that coming and kind out of, of I that guess, country. Talking about women, especially what they're going through at the moment. As a Pakistani Muslim, I see their struggles and I it is, I think, unfathomable what they're going through. And the fact that international actors continue to let them go through this and cower away from addressing this and doing something about this. And when it comes to looking at the whole system, they kind of use Islam as the the defining ideology for this. They kind of believe they're doing this to help Afghanistan for the betterment of Afghanistan. But what does the reality of that really look like? How is it harming Afghanistan more than helping? I think it's killing Afghanistan. I think it's uh, an attack at the core of that country. I think it's taking the country decades back, if not centuries. I think the women of Afghanistan have gone through so much, not only in the past two years, but I think in the past recent decades. Let's not forget that the country has been going through some sort of conflict in the past 30, 40, well, almost 50 years now, depending how you count. And uh, the Taliban, with its very limited, narrow view and interpretation of religion, is taking it to an absolute extreme. And that is not what the Afghan tradition says. That's not what the Afghan culture says. That's not a, certainly not what, what Islam says. And that has been condemned by Islamic scholars across the world. And um, so many religious scholars have visited the country. They have told the Taliban leaders that this is not what Islam says and what Islam is about. I don't think that Taliban is really representing the religion in a way that is convincing for 1.5 billion you know, people who practice the religion globally. I don't think it's convincing enough. I think it's a very sad um, reality in the country. I think it's really, really damaging the society. They have banned women from going to places like parks. They have just shut down their beauty salons. They have stopped women from working for the UN, for instance, or international organizations. But on the positive side, the Afghan women are still fighting for their right. Whether that's, you see that in women going out and protesting and their voices heard, or they're engaging in some businesses where it's still not noticed, where it's still possible. They are heavily involved in um, homeschooling providing education to other young women at home, at their home. 
so they have not given up. I, we can't, yes, they are victims, but at the same time, they are heroes. So you have to see both sides of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I read this one New York Times article, and I thought that it brought something really interesting forward about kind of the perspective about women and their struggling and their suffrage under this regime. In the article, it's kind of talked about how they're interviewing this, this Afghanistani woman, and she talks about how she always had this feeling, this inkling, this unspoken understanding that Afghan men were uncomfortable with women in the public space, the public life. She said that although her father and her husband were supportive of her career, it often seemed like they were outliers in the, in the majority of the men there. She said that her and her friends would kind of trade stories about, quote, the Talib in man is coming out. You know, men who she didn't know would approach her and her friends saying, you know, before the Taliban take over that your days are numbered, your days are over. And she said that she could sense women's progress crumbling. And she said that she felt it even before the government fell. And so I was wondering, what would your perspective be on this and in the, in the role of men in this conversation? I don't think the Afghan man should be really proud of the situation, to, to put it as a start. But let's also not make the Taliban represent the other half of the Afghan society as well. Look, this is also the country where 30% of its civil service were women, where one-fourth of the parliament were women, a country where so many leading journalists, activists, fighters in the army, pilots, engineers. So I think looking at the success of the Afghan women across the board also represents not only the sympathy and support, but the broad view of so many Afghan men who definitely supported, I think, Afghan women throughout history, particularly in the past 20 years or so. So at the moment, I think the uh, Taliban, as I said, do not represent the country, the people, definitely not the women. And I would say not even not even the men uh, in, in, in Afghanistan or, or all men in Afghanistan. The Taliban are the ones, you know, who are outliers in a way that they would like to tailor the society based on their own thinking and beliefs, which, to be honest with you, sometimes, you know, I am confused where, where it comes from. That makes sense. That makes sense. When it comes to the situation with women, how can we as Canadians help? especially with what the women are going through and suffering beyond just hearing their stories. What can we do with those stories? How can we empower them? How can we encourage them? And how can we protect them, even if we're not close to them? I think we have to make sure the voices of the African women are heard and uh, make sure their struggles and their, their fight, their sacrifices uh, are not in, not in vain. And uh, that is a moral responsibility of not only Canada as a country or the West as a civilization, but I think the entire humanity. Uh, that you cannot ignore suffering of a large number of people, particularly in this very unique fashion, uh, which happens in, in a particular part of the world. And uh, at the same time, I think we should also look into creative ways of trying to help them take their hands and support them. Right now, the Afghan football team, I think in Australia, is trying to be recognized by FIFA. And uh, I saw the other day that nearly 50,000 people signed a petition so that FIFA could recognize the Afghan football team. I don't think 
that FIFA needs 50,000 signatures to recognize the national Afghan women's football teams. And sometimes you wonder how complicated you know the, the world has become. So there are ways that you know we can certainly enter the situation and try to address it. And it starts with uh, talking about it. It starts with trying to understand what's happening. It starts with, I think, also trying to engage with others to see how can we come up with creative solutions. There is no problem that you know, we can't find a solution for it. I'm sure it's a man-made problem. We can, we can find a man-made solution for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When it comes at looking at what Canada has done to kind of address the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, there's many, many kind of records of aid being sent, humanitarian assistance to support vulnerable Afghanistanians and in, in the region. Did that money really help? Or was it more of, I guess, Canada's way of feeling morally comfortable with not doing as much as they could have in the situation? I'm sure it has. It has helped. We can't say that the humanitarian support has not helped the, the people, but it has also been misused. Whether I think the response has been creative to address the problem, I don't think so. It's a global responsibility, I would say. No one country can really find a solution for it. I think Canada, as a country with foreign policy very much focused around uh, women empowerment and giving uh, women a voice and support them globally, I think has to do more. And that's where somebody who, who lives now in Canada, I must say, I don't think Afghanistan is the discussion here. I know it's, there are so many competing agendas and crises uh, you know, around the world, but it should not be at the cost of forgetting a place like Afghanistan where so many Canadian troops died. They lost their lives for it. And Canada had combat forces in that country for 15, 16 years. Absolutely. I think nowadays with the news cycles and just simply how fast and, you know, there's a consequence to the interconnectedness that we've achieved in our society today. I know that we kind of talked about how we could, you know, help elevate those voices and provide more of a platform for them. But, you know, having been in Canada, what more should the Canadian government do? to make sure that citizens are engaged beyond just, you know, Afghanistani Canadians taking on the burden of having to advocate. What else could they do to not only ensure that, you know, they're giving light and attention to this issue, but many other crises around the world as well, for example, in Venezuela or Rwanda or countless other countries in the global south? I think any country who cares about Afghan women or women in general, particularly when it comes to basic rights such as education and, and girls going to school should have a representative on this matter. I think it's only the U.S. right now that has a female envoy for the situation of women's rights in Afghanistan. I think that has to be across the board. Um, I think every country has to have a specific policy on how to deal with suppressors of women's rights, um, but at the same time should also come up with creative solutions, whether that is to enable Afghan women to go for online education, for instance, whether uh, it should be to um, empower Afghan female journalists who are in the country to keep reporting, whether that is to allow Afghan students take scholarships, go abroad and continue their education. And so many of the talents, the Afghan you know, women talents who are around the world should be supported that they can also contribute. I think such a coalition or joint effort is lacking. I would say if somebody is looking into it from, from a different perspective, probably to address particularly the situation of women's rights, probably this is where I think one should start. Only a few years ago, we had people worried that the Taliban 
would come into power. And now we're marking the two-year date of the Taliban takeover. How has the Taliban taking over, I guess, changed people's perception of the reality of Afghanistan? I think the Taliban once again proved that they are the Taliban. There isn't, there is no Taliban 2.0. There is no, there is no Taliban that can understand realities of of today's world. And uh, it has been proven to the Afghan people once again, and also to the international community. I know a lot of people are trying and hoping to see if that can change, but I'm not sure if just being hopeful or wishful thinking is the right strategy for responsible players here. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Um, and again, it was a real pleasure kind of getting to pick at your mind and kind of get a deeper understanding of Afghanistan. So thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy that we had a chance at this particular time, I think marking two years of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan to talk about two uh, pressing issues that are important, not to me, but also to you, Aliza, and to uh, hopefully to our, our audience as well, be it uh, the situation of women and girls, as well as press freedom. I think Afghanistan is a country that democracy is very, very much well-rooted. Let's not oversimplify by saying that it's a mountainous tribal country where modern phenomena such as democracy is not really made for for that country and that's not true i've seen no studies that puts i think approval rating for democracy or elections less than two-thirds and, uh, and even right now it's just a matter of i think the oxygen and the ecosystem that needs to be to be provided or created i'm grateful to you for bringing afghanistan the center of your program and thank you for having me hello again thanks for listening to episode two we'll be back again very soon well, at least sooner than a whole year, to bring you our next episode with Professor Stephen Nagy, an expert on Indo-Pacific relations and regional affairs. See you next time.